Bill, I'm thrilled to have you on 20 Minute Playbook. Thank you so much for coming on and for making time today. Great to be here, Daniel. Where I would love to start is with a little bit of an interesting question kind of around your daily routine. And the the question is, you know, if people listening could shadow you for a day from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to bed, as creepy as that might be, what would they see and what would be they what would they be most surprised by in your day? I don't know what they'd be most surprised by, but I'll give you a a day in the life. Um, So uh, I get up, uh, let's say, 445, 5 a.m. I, um, uh, you know, initially go and make some tea. I'll um, probably run down and do some, I'll get a workout in for sure uh, early in the morning. I'll then most likely uh, hit the, hit my cold plunge. I usually do a cold plunge, uh, you know, four or five times a week after my workout to get that experience. Um, I get back up and I got two teenage boys. So I'm working with uh, their mother to, uh, to, to get the, to get breakfast ready and I shake them loose and I take one or both of them to school. They go to different schools and, um, and then um, work my way to the office. And uh, when I get to the office, um, the first thing I do is go through my my day, look at my agenda, uh, go through my emails. I usually don't book any appointments until 10 a.m. And the reason I do that is because I don't want to jump into the day with a lot of uh, busyness. I want to gather, I call my list of, uh, of to-dos every morning and uh, resort them by priority because priorities change uh, every day and um, go through meetings. I would say that at lunchtime, I, I always bring my lunch, usually healthy meal, you know, whatever vegetables. And today I got vegetables and I got some, uh, I got an avocado and yesterday I had some fish. So I always try and keep it light. Um, and then I get in my, uh, I get in my, um, uh, my hyperbaric chamber for about 45 minutes after a, you know, 15 minute, uh, lunch, and I'll go in there with uh, again with my phone or my laptop, and spend um, some time there uh, recharging. Um, come out of that feeling totally renewed, and then plow into my afternoon. Probably around um, four thirty or so, we do a we do a tasting, and then I'm on my way home. And usually, when I get home, I'm active. Uh, I'm active with my kids. Um, that's uh, that's a day in the life. Okay. There's a bunch of fascinating things in there. I want to ask kind of follow-up questions to it's, it's, you know, super interesting that you do a cold plunge four to five times per week. And it sounds like you do this hyperbaric chamber. Um, you know, is this daily I'm guessing as well too? Yeah, three, four times a week. Depends. If my, sometimes I'm busy at midday, I'm, I have working lunches, in which case, you know, I don't get in it. So. Yeah. With both of those, I'm curious, were they difficult for you to adopt? And was there some sort of impetus, whether it was somebody encouraging you, you trying it at somebody else's house, what was the impetus to get these? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think with regard to the hyperbaric chamber, coming out of COVID, I had severe COVID pneumonia and I was not in great shape. So, and I had some scar tissue in my lungs. So I got in, I did a lot of research and bought one and um, what can I say? It really helped me uh, recover from long COVID. But more than that, I got to say, when I come out of it with the hyper oxygenation, it really feels like I slept two, three hours. I mean, it's really quite invigorating and a lot of clinical research that's been out on that, that I've been reading about and advocating to my friends. That didn't take very hard. I mean, there was some adjustment to, to a little bit of the claustrophobic you know, situation. and Because it's effectively just for people that maybe aren't, you know, don't know, don't, can't visualize a hyperbaric chamber. It's effectively like, I mean, it's coffin-like, <laughs> except it's, it's round and it's made of glass and metal, but you can effectively see out, but it is very small. Yeah, totally. I mean, and really what it does is it, Puts pre- it 
takes oxygen and pressurizes it and it goes into your into your cells into your mitochondria and it's you know really it's really was initially invented for navy seals for the bends when they would come out and now they're used at burn centers etc it really accelerates healing and, and it's really a wonderful piece of equipment but really the cold plunge was really the the tough the toughest to to get into i i i follow david asprey and I was fortunate enough to be on one of his pods. And before prepping for it, we started talking about the cold plunge and, you know, Wim Haas and all the, what's happening there. And I got to say, like, there is definitely the single most impactful uh, activity that I've ever done for my health and wellness, like by far. I would say that with regard to any sort of inflammation, any sort of issues around energy, et cetera, it really shifts it really quickly. What is most profound about it is I'm a type A, high cortisol human being. I really, you know, I, I thrive on adrenaline, you know, for good or for bad. It's sort of, uh, but when I get, when I get out of the cold plunge, I'm in there for four to five minutes. It's, you know, 42, 43 degrees. And it took me some time. I mean, the first couple of times I got in, it was, it was really challenging. It was like, you know, 10 seconds. But I got to say, when I get out of that, I, I have such clarity of thought. Such equanimity, such balance, the, my overall capability of communicating, processing, thinking, any sort of emotional edge I have is completely gone. And uh, I can't recommend it more for entrepreneurs that are grinding hard and have a lot of uh, pressure on them because it is a monumental reset. I mean, and to your point, you know, all all founders that I've met tend to be type A adrenaline <laughs> kind of driven individuals. And so it seems almost like it's a great way to balance out that natural tendency, be able to kind of get rid of some of the stress of the day. I, I want to change and talk a little bit about, you know, values and standards. And the way I typically ask this question, you know, you talk about how you prep for the day, you talk about how you kind of lay out your day. There's a lot of intentionality there. I'm curious, you know, what's important to you about the way that you show up and the values and standards that you bring to the office, to work, to working with your team every single day? Yeah. You know, and this is something that I've developed over, you know, my career path. This this I think behavior. You know, the behavior is the impulse is to enter into a meeting or a conversation with your peers or your subordinates with a hypercritical view on what's not being optimized so that we could perform better. This is the natural orientation I think of an entrepreneur. How do I do it better, faster, cheaper? Um what I've really come to what adopt is realizing that every one of them is doing everything they can to optimize and to enter the conversation with uh, an acknowledgement of what they've done. And when I go into a, let's just say, a, a constructively critical mode, it's really oriented towards what can we do together and how can I support you? to achieve the objective that we've set forth that might not be realized as of yet. So really getting that temperament and really showing up with acknowledgement and secondly, support is really the most, I think, critical learning and behavior change I've developed over the years to, to foster a healthy culture in the midst of highly competitive, high stress, highly driven individuals. 
Yeah, it's very well said. I'd love to ask, you know, a very different question around Kavita, you know, and we're going to talk about a number of different companies that you've built as you've been a part of building. But one of them is the, you know, sparkling probiotic drink maker Kavita. And one of the questions I wanted to ask is just what you've learned about what it takes to build a successful food and beverage company. Because, you know, I do quite a bit of venture capital. Uh, One of the things that is very clearly different, obviously, than a lot of technology businesses is food and beverage businesses. And so I'm just curious for your take, you know, what does it take to create both a great product and a great business with in that space. Yeah. So, you know, I've always been a product person, uh, really developed the product first. And that's you know, really the beginning part. But I, I think the, the thing that really I and the company needed to overcome in that business with that product or, or a suite of products was really understanding how to create a product that was compliant in an otherwise non-compliant medium, uh, non-compliant format, that being a fermented beverage, and maintaining that rigor of oversight on compliance while experiencing a a tremendous amount of quality challenges that would have normally, I think, made most people quit and abandon ship. And over the course of the five and a half years, there were many times when we, I, absolutely had gotten to a point where there was no hope and there were product pulls and there were challenges that would normally make those that didn't really understand and know what it means to pitch a tent to walk away. So I think the thing that I've learned and taken away is that you continue to show up every day and you continue to resource energy, ideas, so until such time that they shut the doors on you and you don't shut the doors on yourself. And so I think that was uh, that level of fortitude and agility was what I walked away with as the biggest, uh, I think, experience to really overcome the challenges and win. Yeah. One of the ways I've heard that said that I really like is, um, you know, to your point, it feels like so much of how we're influenced throughout the day is just emotionally. And, you know, if you're doing ambitious things that are very difficult, you're going to confront a lot of pretty not so awesome, just, you know, blockers, milestones, moments. uh, And, you know, so just this idea of like, don't give in to hope. Also, don't give in to fear and just try to show up every single day, give your best self and try to take one step forward. (laughs) It's the challenge. Totally. I mean, it's, uh, the fear piece is really interesting because I think even the most stoic of us uh, warriors, you know, there are moments where if you don't acknowledge fear, you're not, I don't think, facing some of the realities of, uh, of a startup. So really getting through that, I think, is a real good shout. Yeah. And I just want to ask one clarifying question. You know, I'm guessing what you're talking about there is, uh, you know, in terms of just some of the challenges at Kavita was you were creating a shelf-stable fermented product. And this was in the very early days of kind of fermented products. And just the challenges of doing that, and actually getting it to the shelf in something that people are going to enjoy that's actually good for them and not. I mean, Kavita actually, just just rewind a little bit, uh, isn't shelf-stable. Uh, flying numbers is. So and, but what happens is because it wasn't shelf stable and it had bacteria in it and some sugar, it, unless there was uh, impeccable GMPs, 
you know, you were going to find yourself with an explosive Molotov cocktail on the shelf or something growing in it that otherwise might be a health concern. So, uh, yeah, that was definitely. Got it. That makes sense. I want to shift and, you know, one of my favorite things to talk about on this show is, is just great books. And, um, you know, so I'm curious, I want to ask the question, just what books come to mind that have had an outsized impact or just a large impact on you? And this can be the way you work, the way you approach life, the way you see the world, what books have had the biggest impact on your life and maybe your business? I think by, you know, there's a book by Gay, Gay Hendricks called uh, The Big Leap. And uh, The Big Leap, uh, really was a book that I, that really made a difference for me in my life. And it really talked about your upper limits and what are your upper limits and how do you, how do you face your upper limits and how do you move beyond your upper limits? And that, that book has had an impact on me in my personal life and in my professional life that really has made a difference for me. So, you know, we all have our limitations that we should be aware of and, and, and overcoming them and understanding how to overcome them was an important part of my uh, personal professional growth. Yeah, that's a fascinating book. No one's brought that up. And I love the idea and the topic of, you know, focusing on upper limits, understanding your upper limits and trying to push your upper limits, because it does feel like, I think, again, one of the things I've noticed, just anyone that has enough ambition, they're going to explore your upper limits. So you're going to have some painful experiences <laughs> confronting and hitting the wall with your upper limits. And so, you know, it's cool that there's a book that can help you think about that. I want to uh, ask about, you know, areas where you have an edge or a superpower. And, you know, the, the way I typically kind of think about this is if you were to zoom out and kind of think about yourself, what do you think, what do you think of as your edges or your superpowers and how do those show up day to day? I think have, first having insights on trends, understanding what, uh, where trends are and how, uh, how a given consumer packaged good might fit into that trend. I think that's really the first piece of my superpower. I think the second piece is to understand when you look at a company or a product, really identifying what the what the points of difference or differentiations are so that you know that you have a competitive advantage when you go to market. Great ideas are important, great products are important, but without having any way of differentiating yourself from the competitive set, you've got no way of working through the clutter. I think then ruling that all into and framing it up into a value proposition where you could present to investors the opportunity um, clearly and be ultimately a promoter. I mean, entrepreneurs need to be great promoters or they're not going to get people internal or external to believe in them. So framing that up and articulating that in a way that's quickly digestible uh, by the uh, by, the investor or even the uh, senior leader that you're trying to attract into the new venture is going to be uh, really important. I think framing up an exit. I mean, a lot. At least in my line of work, I build, uh, I build, I sell. So and so, I'm attracting people that want to participate in that journey. So really, getting uh, getting really clear on and giving some visibility on how it happens, how you build it, and how you sell it is really also an important part of, I think, attracting great talent and a great investor base. Look, I think I do have a superpower in detail. I think that superpower is also probably my weakness. I oftentimes go 
so deep into executional detail of, let's say, winning a shelf or executional detail of go to market or when it comes to details around QA, GMP. I mean, I have penchant for just getting into the weeds. And then I think what that does oftentimes is that unlocks certain, um, let's say, challenges that require deeper thinking and but what it also does is it disrupts the continuity sometimes of your particular department or team. So one of the ongoing uh, learnings and sensitivity that, that I need to have and continue to have is that when I see that we have a challenge in, 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 in digital marketing and I want to jump in or I think we have a challenge with, uh, with you know, execution itself, or distributor management, wholesale. I mean, I just need to thoughtfully really request an invitation to be to have a seat at the table. Actually, I wrote an email late last night to, 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 to a couple of team members about something. And I said, look, I really think I have, I have, I, I can bring some value. I want to, I would like to have a seat, a seat at the table as we think through our TPR strategy and feature programming. And, um, you know, really translated in a better way than saying, you know, I really want to be involved because I think, I think we want to do this differently. So that level of detail, I think is a superpower, but it's also been, I think, uh, not such a great asset at times over the years and reaching in and reaching too deeply. So. Yeah. I mean, I love how thoughtful you are about that. And, you know, just even reflecting for a second, like imagining being a member on your team, I clearly work for you. <laughs> and and yet you see something that you're interested in. And rather than saying, hey, you know, to, in, in the companies I've been a part of, by and large, the default is show it, you know, it's some sort of demand or kind of request, but it's not phrased as can I join? I'd love to have a seat at the table. I mean, it's an, just an amazing way, I think, of reframing it and making sure that they feel like they have the power to basically say yes or no. Um, so I, I, I love that. I, I want to ask a couple of, um, you know, follow-up questions on trends and differentiation. And, and one of the questions I want to ask on differentiation is, you know, may just be my perspective. When I go to say Whole Foods and look at items on the shelf, it often feels like there's differentiation, but it's almost like micro differentiation. Whereas the cons- you know consumer, you have to be very thoughtfully tuning in and paying a lot of attention to really know what the difference is. And so one of the questions I want to ask you is, you know, it feels like with differentiation, there's like major points where you're significantly different, where you don't have these ingredients, you don't have these things. And there's micro variations of, of differentiation. How do you think about the differentiation that matters and the differentiation that counts in the eyes of the consumer? Yeah, well, let me start with one of the companies I, I got involved with really early, and I'm a board member and a and a and an and investor shareholder, Koya. So uh, uh, Chris Hunter uh, came to me. We looked at it. I mean, he he was uh, in, and I, I I looked at this protein drink, and the first thing that is the most important point of difference is quality of taste. So I think that even within any competitive set, the first place you have to win is is that quality, texture, a texture of mouthfeel, et cetera, if it's a beverage. And then, you know, you go into the specific flavorings. Again, in CPG and food and beverage, uh, it's really flavor first. That really is the point of difference. And, and what sort of on-trend lead ingredients one's employing is, is makes the difference. So making sure your team or the team you're investing in has 
insights and a superpower there is absolutely incredible, uh, important. I think the the other next level down on point of difference really does come with macro attributes. What what's really driving this particular category's growth? And I think quality of ingredients is really the next place, and and how you really communicate quality of ingredients uh, as you think of a premium position product. And uh, so that, that therein lies either no artificial, this or that, farm to table, certified organic, biodynamic, regenerative farming, all these sort of buzzwords, I think, really matter to, uh, to a, a growing consumer base that's really looking for better for you. And then finally, I think going down to the next tier is really this piece around sugar. And carbs, like really fundamentally people in beverages and in foods, unless it's an indulgent experience, which we 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 have and we enjoy sugar, uh, there really is a there really is a massive trend towards not eating or drinking your your not eat not drinking your calories in particular and really staying away from the sugar and to some extent the carbs. So that's really the next place. And then finally, if I could go one step further, then it really gets into the adaptogens or the um, you know, the the micronutrients or the, you know, all those other, I, I would say, functional ingredients that, uh, that really kind of make one say, oh, I'm going to go after this because I want that. But if you don't have everything above it lined up, you're not going to, you're not going to get the momentum you need to be a leader in the category. So that's how I view it. Yeah, that's, I think that's a great and it's a great framework, and I, I love that it starts with taste because I think that um, you know one point of view I've had it sounds like you you believe as well too is that even if you're developing a product that's better for somebody, if you're losing on taste but you're winning on being better for someone, you're just not going to find that many customers and consumers. It's not going to be sustainable. <laughs> yeah, which seems obvious, but I, I encounter I think many many companies that I think don't don't quite understand that. I, I want to ask one more question on trends, and I'm going to make a little bit of a weird kind of comparison analogy, but, um, you know, in investing, so I interview founders, interview investors as well in investing. There's, you know, this kind of fascinating phenomenon that you have some investors that pay attention to kind of macroeconomics and, and just, it's a place that they spend a lot of time thinking, even though it mostly to inform the investment decisions that they make. And it seems like in your world, you know, following trends, understanding trends is almost like understanding some of the macro of how the world's changing and evolving that can then influence the decisions you make at your company. And so I guess the questions I want to ask is for some listening who doesn't believe that trends are important or doesn't believe that trends are powerful, what would you say to them about why trends matter? And then can you just talk a little bit about how you follow trends and how that maybe trickles down into some of your decision-making? Sure. Well, trends are important because when trends are on an incline and there is uh, growth, right? Trend is growth. There's a phrase that is really tried and true in business that, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. So I'll give you an example. So when we we launched uh, a hard seltzer, um, and we launched a hard seltzer that really was uh, you know zero sugar, zero carbs, organic, really tasted great, real color, real amazing, and we launched it at the peak of a trend, hard seltzer trend. And the first year we got great adoption, but when the trend started falling materially and it became a commodity of sorts there's no declining trend that you could offset with any attribute because when the retailers are saying 
we have enough. I don't care how good it is. And Costco's backed up six months. And all of a sudden, you, you lose your Costco rotation or your Trader Joe's or whatever it might be because the trend has changed. Then you find yourself in a, in a situation where no matter how good the product or the branding or the marketing, you're not going to get what you need in order to sustain growth. So that's a, that's a firsthand experience uh, with me and, my, and you know, this brand's portfolio. Yeah, no, it's very well said. And Hard Seltzer is fascinating because it did feel like there was this moment where it was taking off and you started seeing everybody creating a hard seltzer and entering the market. And of course, it was clearly going to play out the way it played out. But, you know, it's um, I think it disappointed a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of founders that maybe weren't as prepared. Did get to, you know, four and a half billion or so. Category. They grew pretty aggressively, but then as fast as they go up, they come down. Yeah, and it's difficult to fight, obviously, or impossible to try to fight. Okay, I want to ask two more questions. You know, you've been an incredibly successful founder and entrepreneur. You've backed a number of other successful um, entrepreneurs at companies like Wild Brands, Iconic Protein. You talked about Koya. What have you learned about the skills and attributes that it takes to build an important company? And so I guess what I'm asking here is, you know, you're as an investor or advisor, I'm sure you're clearly looking for something in the product itself. I'm sure you're also looking for something in the founder. And so what have you found about the best founders that you work with? Yeah. So there, there's a company I advised uh, and invested in uh, called Vive Organics. And uh, the CEO's name was Wyatt. And uh, they just recently transacted to Suja and Payne Schwartz. And I got to tell you, the one, the, the, the characteristic that Wyatt exhibits is a penchant for attention to detail that is ad nauseum. I mean, the depth of thought and, and consideration on every detail across every touch point in his company was fully exhausted and looked at. And I, I got to tell you, that attention to detail is absolutely, and, and, and it's an inexhaustible thing. You know, it's just like someone that just always wants to get it right and translate the learnings from these details into new company behaviors that really will alter the trajectory of the company. And I will say that is something that I, I really respect in, in founders and and I find uh, specifically in Wyatt that I think really helped facilitate that brand so quickly to, to a quick exit. Um, yeah, that's probably the one thing. Yeah, it's a great one. Okay, finally, if you could go back to the start of your career and whisper a few words in your ear, maybe a reminder, is there anything you would tell yourself, just whether it's to keep something in mind, whether it's um, you know to kind of orient yourself around what sorts of things you're pursuing, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would probably be a little bit more discriminating when it comes to uh, founder capabilities. Um, uh, you know, and, and the second thing is there's a couple of, uh, uh, there's a CPG, there's a, a company that I invested in that, uh, that has, uh, um, it's a better for you dishwasher and laundry soap company. And I relied on a very smart and credible friend to go into the deal. And, uh, and yet, and besides that, I was, I was somewhat concerned about the leadership and the coordination between the board and the healthiness between the board of directors, the stakeholders, and the uh, CEO. And I got to tell you, the thing that, and I've lost a lot of money where in retrospect, if I had been a little bit more 
thoughtful or critical around the board or investor base and the CEO and that health or lack of health, um, I would have probably have saved myself um, a lot of money investing in, in, a, in a few deals where that wasn't aligned and that really that really hurt me. So I think in retrospect, all of us that are investors or entrepreneurs need to make sure that the investor base you get in, that there is a healthy, do take the time and do your due diligence to make sure your core values are aligned, your business objectives and outcomes are aligned, and that ultimately there is a connection between you and those individuals and leaders. Because when times get tough, and they do, you want to be able to work through it constructively and not have something that could ultimately hurt the company. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great reminder. I mean, it's a great note. No one else has also raised that on the podcast, which I always like. Um, it, perfect you know, spot to end on. Thank you so much for coming on, Bill. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it, Daniel. Have a great day. Thank you.